0: part 1c of august comte and positivism this librivox recording is in the public domain august comte and positivism by john stuart mill part 1c mr herbert spencer in his essay entitled the genesis of science and more recently in a pamphlet on the classification of the sciences has criticized and condemned m. comte's classification and proposed a more elaborate one of his own and M. Lettre, in his valuable biographical and philosophical work on M. Comte, Auguste Comte et la philosophie positive, has at some length criticized the criticism. Mr. Spencer is one of the small number of persons who, by the solidity and encyclopedical character of their knowledge, and their power of coordination and concatenation, may claim to be the peers of M. Comte, and entitled to a vote in the estimation of him. But after giving to his animadversions the respectful attention due to all that comes from Mr. Spencer, we cannot find that he has made out any case. It is always easy to find fault with a classification. There are a hundred possible ways of arranging any set of objects, and something may almost always be said against the best, and in favour of the worst of them. But the merits of a classification depend on the purposes to which it is instrumental. We have shown the purposes for which M. Comte's classification is intended. Mr. Spencer has not shown that it is ill-adapted to those purposes, and we cannot perceive that his own answers any ends equally important. His chief objection is that if the more special sciences need the truths of the more general ones, the latter also need some of those of the former, and have at times been stopped in their progress by the imperfect state of sciences, which follow long after them in M. Comte's scale. So that, the dependence being mutual, there is a consensus but not an ascending scale or hierarchy of the sciences. That the earlier sciences derive help from the later is undoubtedly true. It is part of M. Comte's theory, and amply exemplified in the details of his work. When he affirms that one science historically precedes another, he does not mean that the perfection of the first precedes the humblest commencement of those which follow. Mr. Spencer does not distinguish between the empirical stage of the cultivation of a branch of knowledge and the scientific stage. The commencement of every study consists in gathering together unanalyzed facts, and treasuring up such spontaneous generalizations as present themselves to natural sagacity. In this stage any branch of inquiry can be carried on independently of every other and it is one of monsieur comte's own remarks that the most complex in a scientific point of view of all studies the latest in his series the study of man as a moral and social being since from its absorbing interest it is cultivated more or less by every one and pre-eminently by the great practical minds acquired at an early period a greater stock of just though unscientific observations than the more elementary sciences. It is these empirical truths that the later and more special sciences lend to the earlier, or at most some extremely elementary scientific truth, which happening to be easily ascertainable by direct experiment, could be made available for carrying a previous science, already founded, to a higher stage of development. A reaction of the later sciences on the earlier, which M. Comte not only fully recognized, but attached great importance to systematizing. Footnote: The strongest case which Mr. Spencer produces of a scientifically ascertained law, which, though belonging to a later science, was necessary to the scientific formation of one occupying an earlier place in M. Comte's series, is the law of the accelerating force of gravity, which M. Comte places in physics. But without which the Newtonian theory of the celestial motions could not have been discovered, nor could even now be proved. This fact, as is judiciously remarked by M. Lettray, is not valid against the plan of M. Comte's classification, but discloses a slight error in the detail. M. Comte should not have placed the laws of terrestrial gravity under physics. They are part of the general theory of gravitation, and belong to astronomy. Mr. Spencer has hit one of the weak points in M. Comte's scientific scale. Weak, however, only because left unguarded. Astronomy, the second of M. Comte's abstract sciences, answers to his own definition of a concrete science. M. Comte, however, was only wrong in overlooking a distinction. There is an abstract science of astronomy, namely the theory of gravitation, which would equally agree with and explain the facts of a totally different solar system from the one which our earth forms a part. The actual facts of our own system, the dimensions of distances, velocities, temperatures, physical constitution, etc., of the sun, earth, and planets, are properly the subject of a concrete science, similar to natural history but the concrete is more inseparably united to the abstract science than in any other case, since the few celestial facts, really accessible to us, are nearly all required for discovering and proving the law of gravitation as an universal property of bodies, and have therefore an indispensable place in the abstract science as its fundamental data. End footnote. But though detached truths relating to the more complex order of phenomena may be empirically observed, and a few of them even scientifically established, contemporaneously with an early stage of some of the sciences anterior in the scale, such detached truths, as M. Littré justly remarks, do not constitute a science. What is known of a subject only becomes a science when it is made a connected body of truth, in which the relation between the general principles and the details, is definitely made out, and each particular truth can be recognized as a case of the operation of wider laws. This point of progress, at which the study passes from the preliminary state of mere preparation, into a science, cannot be reached by the more complex studies until it has been attained by the simpler ones. A certain regularity of recurrence in the celestial appearances was ascertained empirically, before much progress had been made in geometry. But astronomy could no more be a science until geometry was a highly advanced one, than the rule of three could have been practiced before addition and subtraction. The truths of the simpler sciences are a part of the laws to which the phenomena of the more complex sciences conform, and are not only a necessary element in their explanation, but must be so well understood as to be traceable through complex combinations, before the special laws which coexist and cooperate with them can be brought to light this is all that monsieur comte affirms and enough for his purpose footnote the only point at which the general principle of the series fails in its application is the subdivision of physics and there as the subordination of the different branches scarcely exists their order is of little consequence thermology indeed is altogether an exception to the principle of decreasing generality heat as mr spencer truly says being as universal as gravitation but the place of thermology is marked out within certain narrow limits by the ends of the classification though not by its principle the desideratum is that every science should precede those which cannot be scientifically constitute or rationally studied until it is known it is as a means to this end that the arrangement of the phenomena in the order of their dependence on one another is important now Though heat is as universal a phenomenon as any which external nature presents, its laws do not affect, in any manner important to us, the phenomena of astronomy, and operate in the other branches of physics only as slight modifying agencies, the consideration of which may be postponed to a rather advanced stage. But the phenomena of chemistry and biology depend on them often for their very existence. The ends of the classification require therefore that thermology should precede chemistry and biology, but do not demand that it should be thrown farther back. On the other hand, those same ends, in another point of view, require that it should be subsequent to astronomy, for reasons not of doctrine but of method, astronomy being the best school of the true art of interpreting nature, by which thermology profits like other sciences, but which it was ill-adapted to originate. Footnote. He, no doubt, occasionally indulges in more unqualified expressions than can be completely justified, regarding the logical perfection of the construction of his series, and its exact correspondence with the historical evolution of the sciences. Exaggerations confined to language, and which the details of his exposition often correct. But he is sufficiently near the truth, in both respects, for every practical purpose footnote the philosophy of the subject is perhaps nowhere so well expressed as in the systeme de politique Positive three hundred forty one conçu logiquement l'ordre suivant lequel nos principales théories accomplissant d'évolution fondamentale résulte nécessairement de leur dépendance mutuelle Tout les sciences pouvant sans doute être ébauchées à la fois leur usage pratiqué exige même cette culture simultanée mais elle ne peut concerner que les inductions propres à chaque classe de spéculation or cet essor inductif ne saurait fournir des suffisant qu'envers les plus simples études. Partout alors, ils ne pouvons être établis qu'en subordonnant chaque genre d'induction scientifique à l'assemblé des déductions éménées des domaines moins compliqués et des alors moins dépendants, ainsi nos diverses théories reposant dogmatiquement les unes Sir les autres qui dot suivant un ordre invariable qui doit régler historiquement leur avancement décisif les plus indépendantes s'ayant toujours dû se développer plus tôt End Minor inaccuracies must often be forgiven even to great thinkers Mr Spencer in the very writings in which he criticizes Monsieur Comte affords signal instances of them. Footnote: Science, says Mr. Spencer in his Genesis, while purely inductive is purely qualitative, all quantitative prevision is reached deductively. Induction can achieve only qualitative prevision. Now if we remember that the very first accurate quantitative law of physical phenomena ever established, the law of the accelerating force of gravity, was discovered and proved by Galileo partly at least by experiment, that the quantitative laws on which the whole theory of the celestial motions is grounded were generalized by Kepler from direct comparison of observations, that the quantitative law of the condensation of gases by pressure, the law of Boyle and Marriott, was arrived at by direct experiment that the proportional quantities in which every known substance combines chemically with every other were ascertained by innumerable experiments, from which the general law of chemical equivalence, now the ground of the most exact quantitative previsions, was an inductive generalization. We must conclude that Mr. Spencer has committed himself to a general proposition which a very slight consideration of truths, perfectly known to him, would have shown to be unsustainable. Again, in the very pamphlet in which Mr. Spencer defends himself against the supposition of being a disciple of M. Comte, the classification of the sciences, page thirty seven, he speaks of M. Comte's adherent, Mr. Buckle. Now, except in the opinion common to both, that history may be made a subject of science, the speculations of these two thinkers are not only different, but run in different channels. M. Comte applying himself principally to the laws of evolution common to all mankind, Mr. Buckle almost exclusively to the diversities. And it may be affirmed without presumption that they neither saw the same truths, nor fell into the same errors, nor defended their opinions, either true or erroneous, by the same arguments. Indeed, it is one of the surprising things in the case of Mr. Buckle, as of Mr. Spencer that, being a man of kindred genius, of the same wide range of knowledge, and devoting himself to speculations of the same kind, he profited so little by M. Comte. These oversights prove nothing against the general accuracy of Mr. Spencer's acquirements. They are mere lapses of inattention, such as thinkers who attempt speculations requiring that vast multitudes of facts should be kept in recollection at once, can scarcely hope always to avoid. End footnote. Combining the doctrines, that every science is in a less advanced state as it occupies a higher place in the ascending scale, and that all the sciences pass through the three stages, theological, metaphysical, and positive, it follows that the more special a science is, the tardier is it in effecting each transition, so that a completely positive state of an earlier science is often coincided with the metaphysical state of the one next to it, and a purely theological state of those further on. This statement correctly represents the general course of the facts, though requiring allowances in the detail. Mathematics, for example, from the very beginning of its cultivation, can hardly at any time have been in the theological state, though exhibiting many traces of the metaphysical. No one probably ever believed that the will of a god kept parallel lines from meeting, or made two and two equal to four or ever prayed to the gods to make the square of the hypotenuse equal to more or less than the sum of the squares of the sides. The most devout believers have recognized in propositions of this description a class of truths independent of the divine omnipotence. Even among the truths which popular philosophy calls by the misleading name of contingent, the few which are at once exact and obvious were probably from the very first accepted from the theological explanation. Monsieur Comte observes, after Adam Smith, that we are not told in any age or country of a god of weight. It was otherwise with astronomy. The heavenly bodies were believed not merely to be moved by gods, but to be gods themselves. And when this theory was exploded, their movements were explained by metaphysical conceptions, such as a tendency of nature to perfection, in virtue of which these sublime bodies, being left to themselves, move in the most perfect orbit—the circle even kepler was full of fancies of this description which only terminated when newton by unveiling the real physical laws of the celestial motions closed the metaphysical period of astronomical science as m comte remarks our power of foreseeing phenomena and our power of controlling them are the two things which destroy the belief of their being governed by changeable wills in the case of phenomena which science has not yet taught us either to foresee or to control The theological mode of thought has not ceased to operate. Men still pray for rain, or for success in war, or to avert a shipwreck, or a pestilence, but not to put back the stars in their courses, to abridge the time necessary for a journey, or to arrest the tides. Such vestiges of the primitive mode of thought linger in the more intricate departments of sciences which have attained a high degree of positive development. The metaphysical mode of explanation, being less antagonistic than the theological to the idea of invariable laws, is still slower in being entirely discarded. M. Comte finds remains of it in the sciences which are the most completely positive, with the single exception of astronomy—mathematics itself not being, he thinks, altogether free from them—which is not wonderful. When we see at how very recent a date mathematicians have been able to give the really positive interpretation of their own symbols. Footnote: We refer particularly to the mystical metaphysics connected with the negative sign, imaginary quantities, infinity, and infinitesimals, etc., all cleared up and put on a rational footing in the highly philosophical treatises of Professor De Morgan. End footnote. We have already, however, had occasion to notice Monsieur Comte's propensity to use the term metaphysical in cases containing nothing that truly answers to his definition of the word. For instance, he considers chemistry as tainted with the metaphysical mode of thought by the notion of chemical affinity. He thinks that the chemists who said that bodies combine because they have an affinity for each other, believed in a mysterious entity residing in bodies and inducing them to combine. On any other supposition, he thinks the statement could only mean that bodies combine because they combine. But it really meant more. It was the abstract expression of the doctrine, that bodies have an invariable tendency to combine with one thing in preference to another, that the tendencies of different substances to combine are fixed quantities, of which the greater always prevails over the less, so that if A detaches B from C in one case, it will do so in every other which was called having a greater attraction, or, more technically, a greater affinity for it. This was not a metaphysical theory, but a positive generalization, which accounted for a great number of facts, and would have kept its place as a law of nature had it not been disproved by the discovery of cases in which, though A detached B from C in some circumstances, C detached it from A in others, showing the law of elective chemical combination to be a less simple one, than had at first been supposed. In this case, therefore, M. Comte made a mistake, and he will be found to have made many similar ones. But in the science next after chemistry, biology, the empty mode of explanation by scholastic entities, such as a plastic force, a vital principle, and the like, has been kept up even to the present day. The German physiology of the school of Oken, notwithstanding his acknowledged genius, is almost as metaphysical as Hegel, and there is in France a quite recent revival of the animism of Stahl. These metaphysical explanations, besides their inanity, did serious harm by directing the course of positive scientific inquiry into wrong channels. There was indeed nothing to prevent investigating the mode of action of the supposed plastic or vital force by observation and experiment but the phrases gave currency and coherence to a false abstraction and generalization, setting inquirers to look out for one cause of complex phenomena which undoubtedly depended on many. According to M. Comte, chemistry entered into the positive stage with Lavoisier, in the latter half of the last century in a subsequent treatise he places the date a generation earlier, and biology at the beginning of the present, when Bichat, drew the fundamental distinction between nutritive or vegetative and properly animal life, and referred the properties of organs to the general laws of the component tissues. The most complex of all sciences, the social, had not, he maintained, become positive at all, but was the subject of an ever-renewed and barren contest between the theological and the metaphysical modes of thought. To make this highest of the sciences positive, and thereby complete the positive character of all human speculations, was the principal aim of his labours, and he believed himself to have accomplished it in the last three volumes of his treatise. But the term positive is not any more than metaphysical always used by M. Comte in the same meaning. There never can have been a period in any science when it was not in some degree positive, since it always professed to draw conclusions from experience and observation. M. Comte, would have been the last to deny that previous to his own speculations the world possessed a multitude of truths, of greater or less certainty, on social subjects, the evidence of which was obtained by inductive or deductive processes from observed sequences of phenomena. Nor could it be denied that the best writers on subjects upon which so many men of the highest mental capacity had employed their powers, had accepted as thoroughly the positive point of view and rejected the theological and metaphysical as decidedly, as M. Comte himself. Montesquieu, even Machiavelli, Adam Smith and the political economists universally, both in France and in England, Bentham, and all thinkers initiated by him, had a full conviction that social phenomena conform to invariable laws, the discovery and illustration of which was their great object as speculative thinkers. All that can be said is, that those philosophers did not get so far as M. Comte in discovering the methods best adapted to bring these laws to light. It was not, therefore, reserved for M. Comte to make sociological inquiries positive. But what he really meant by making a science positive is what we will call, with M. Lettre, giving it its final scientific constitution. In other words, discovering or proving and pursuing to their consequences those of its truths which are fit to form the connecting links among the rest, truths which are to it what the law of gravitation is to astronomy, what the elementary properties of the tissues are to physiology, and we will add, though M. Comte did not, what the laws of association are to psychology. This is an operation which, when accomplished, puts an end to the empirical period, and enables the science to be conceived as a coordinated and coherent body of doctrine. This is what had not yet been done for Sociology, and the hope of effecting it was, from his early years, the prompter and incentive of all M. Comte's philosophic labours. It was with a view to this that he undertook that wonderful systematization of the philosophy of all the antecedent sciences, from mathematics to physiology, which, if he had done nothing else, would have stamped him in all minds competent to appreciate it as one of the principal thinkers of the age. To make its nature intelligible to those who are not acquainted with it, we must explain what we mean by the philosophy of a science, as distinguished from the science itself. The proper meaning of philosophy we take to be, what the ancients understood by it, the scientific knowledge of man, as an intellectual, moral, and social being. Since his intellectual faculties include his knowing faculty, the science of man includes everything that man can know, so far as regards his mode of knowing it in other words, the whole doctrine of the conditions of human knowledge. The philosophy of a science thus comes to mean the science itself, considered not as to its results the truths which it ascertains, but as to the processes by which the mind attains them, the marks by which it recognizes them, and the coordinating and methodizing of them with a view to the greatest clearness of conception, and the fullest and readiest availability for use. In one word, the logic of the science. M. Comte has accomplished this for the first five of the fundamental sciences, with a success which can hardly be too much admired. We never reopen even the least admirable part of this survey, the volume on chemistry and biology, which was behind the actual state of those sciences, when first written, and is far in the rear of them now, without a renewed sense of the great reach of its speculations, and a conviction that the way to a complete rationalizing of these sciences, still very imperfectly conceived by most who cultivate them, has been shown nowhere, so successfully, as there. Yet, for a correct appreciation of this great philosophical achievement, we ought to take account of what has not been accomplished, as well as what has. Some of the chief deficiencies and infirmities of M. Kant's system of thought will be found, as is usually the case, in close connection with its greatest successes. The philosophy of science consists of two principal parts—the methods of investigation and the requisites of proof. The one points out the roads by which the human intellect arrives at conclusions, the other the mode of testing their evidence. The former, if complete, would be an organon of discovery, the latter of proof. It is to the first of these that M. Comte principally confines himself, and he treats it with a degree of perfection hitherto unrivalled. Nowhere is there anything comparable, in its kind, to his survey of the resources which the mind has at its disposal for investigating the laws of phenomena, the circumstances which render each of the fundamental modes of exploration suitable or unsuitable to each class of phenomena, the extensions and transformations which the process of investigation has to undergo in adapting itself to each new province of the field of study and the especial gifts with which every one of the fundamental sciences enriches the method of positive inquiry, each science in its turn being the best fitted to bring to perfection one process or another. These, and many cognate subjects, such as the theory of classification, and the proper use of scientific hypotheses, M. Comte has treated with a completeness of insight which leaves little to be desired. Not less admirable is his survey of the most comprehensive truths, that had been arrived at by each science, considered as to their relation to the general sum of human knowledge, and their logical value as aids to its further progress. But after all this, there remains a further and distinct question. We are taught the right way of searching for results, but when a result has been reached, how shall we know that it is true? How assure ourselves that the process has been performed correctly, and that our premises, whether consisting of generalities, or of particular facts, really prove the conclusion we have grounded on them. On this question M. Comte throws no light. He supplies no test of proof. As regards deduction he neither recognizes the syllogistic system of Aristotle and his successors, the insufficiency of which is as evident as its utility is real, nor proposes any other in view of it, and of induction he has no canons whatever. He does not seem to admit the possibility of any general criterion by which to decide whether a given inductive inference is correct or not. Yet he does not, with Dr. Whewell, regard an inductive theory as proved, if it accounts for the facts. On the contrary, he sets himself in the strongest opposition to those scientific hypotheses which, like the luminiferous ether, are not susceptible of direct proof and are accepted on the sole evidence of their aptitude for explaining phenomena. He maintains that no hypothesis is legitimate unless it is susceptible of verification, and that none ought to be accepted as true unless it can be shown not only that it accords with the facts, but that its falsehood would be inconsistent with them. He therefore needs a test of inductive proof, and in assigning none he seems to give up as impracticable the main problem of logic properly so called. At the beginning of his treatise he speaks of a doctrine of method, apart from particular applications as conceivable, but not needful. Method, according to him, is learnt only by seeing it in operation, and the logic of a science can only be usefully taught through the science itself. Towards the end of the work he assumes a more decidedly negative tone, and treats the very conception of studying logic otherwise than in its applications as chimerical. He got on, in his subsequent writings, to considering it as wrong. This indispensable part of positive philosophy he not only left to be supplied by others, but did all that depended on him to discourage them from attempting it. This hiatus in M. Comte's system is not unconnected with the defect in his original conception of the subject-matter of scientific investigation, which has been generally noticed, for it lies on the surface, and is more apt to be exaggerated than overlooked. It is often said of him that he rejects the study of causes. This is not, in the correct acceptation, true, for it is only questions of ultimate origin and of efficient, as distinguished from what are called physical causes, that he rejects. The causes that he regards as inaccessible are causes which are not themselves phenomena. Like other people he admits the study of causes, in every sense in which one physical fact can be cause of another but he has an objection to the word-cause. He will only consent to speak of laws of succession, and depriving himself of the use of a word which has a positive meaning, he misses the meaning it expresses. He sees no difference between such generalizations as Kepler's laws, and such as the theory of gravitation. He fails to perceive the real distinction between the laws of succession and coexistence, which thinkers of a different school call laws of phenomena and those of what they call the action of causes. The former exemplified by the succession of day and night, the latter by the earth's rotation which causes it. The succession of day and night is as much an invariable sequence as the alternate exposure of opposite sides of the earth to the sun. Yet day and night are not the causes of one another. Why? Because their sequence, though invariable in our experience, is not unconditionally so. Those facts only succeed each other provided that the presence and absence of the sun succeed each other, and if this alternation were to cease we might have either day or night unfollowed by one another. There are thus two kinds of uniformities of succession, the one unconditional, the other conditional on the first, laws of causation, and the other successions dependent on those laws. All ultimate laws are laws of causation, and the only universal law beyond the pale of mathematics is the law of universal causation namely that every phenomenon has a phenomenal cause has some phenomenon other than itself or some combination of phenomena on which it is invariably and unconditionally consequent it is on the universality of this law that the possibility rests of establishing a canon of induction a general proposition inductively obtained is only then proved to be true when the instances on which it rests are such that if they have been correctly observed The falsity of the generalization would be inconsistent with the constancy of causation, with the universality of the fact that the phenomena of nature take place according to invariable laws of succession. Those who wish to see this idea followed out are referred to a system of logic, ratiocinative, and inductive. It is not irrelevant to state that M. Comte, soon after the publication of that work, expressed both in a letter published in M. Letre's volume, and in print, his high approval of it, especially of the inductive part, as a real contribution to the construction of the positive method. But we cannot discover that he was indebted to it for a single idea, or that it influenced in the smallest particular the course of his subsequent speculations. End footnote. It is probable, therefore, that M. Comte's determined abstinence from the word and the idea of cause had much to do with his inability to conceive an inductive logic, by diverting his attention from the only basis upon which it could be founded. We are afraid it must also be said, though shown only by slight indications in his fundamental work, and coming out in full evidence only in his later writings, that M. Comte, at bottom, was not so solicitous about completeness of proof as becomes a positive philosopher, and that the unimpeachable objectivity, as he would have called it, of a conception, its exact correspondence to the realities of outward fact, was not, with him, an indispensable condition of adopting it, if it was subjectively useful, by affording facilities to the mind for grouping phenomena. This appears very curiously in his chapters on the philosophy of chemistry, He recommends, as a judicious use of the degree of liberty left to our intelligence by the end and purpose of positive science, that we should accept as a convenient generalization the doctrine that all chemical composition is between two elements only, that every substance which our analysis decomposes, let us say into four elements, has for its immediate constituents two hypothetical substances, each compounded of two simpler ones. There could have been nothing to object to in this as a scientific hypothesis, assumed tentatively as a means of suggesting experiments by which its truth may be tested. With this for its destination, the conception would have been legitimate and philosophical, the more so as, if confirmed, it would have afforded an explanation of the fact that some substances which analysis shows to be composed of the same elementary substances, in the same proportions, differ in their general properties, as, for instance, sugar and gum. Footnote: The force, however, of this last consideration has been much weakened by the progress of discovery since M. Comte left off studying chemistry, it being now probable that most if not all substances, even elementary, are susceptible of allotropic forms, as in the case of oxygen and ozone, the two forms of phosphorus, etc., And if, besides affording a reason for difference between things which differ, the hypothesis had afforded a reason for agreement between things which agree, if the intermediate link by which the quaternary compound was resolved into two binary ones, could have been so chosen as to bring each of them within the analogies of some known class of binary compounds, which it is easy to suppose possible, and which in some particular instances actually happens, footnote Thus, by considering prussic acid as a compound of hydrogen and cyanogen, rather than of hydrogen and the elements of cyanogen, carbon and nitrogen, it is assimilated to a whole class of acid compounds between hydrogen and other substances, and a reason is thus found for its agreeing in their acid properties. End footnote. The universality of binary composition would have been a successful example of an hypothesis in anticipation of a positive theory, to give a direction to inquiry which might end in its being either proved or abandoned. But M. Comte evidently thought that even though it should never be proved, however many cases of chemical composition might always remain in which the theory was still as hypothetical as at first, so long as it was not actually disproved, which it is scarcely in the nature of the case that it should ever be, it would deserve to be retained, for its mere convenience in bringing a large body of phenomena under a general conception. In a résumé of the general principles of the positive method at the end of the work, he claims, in express terms, an unlimited license of adopting, without any vain scruple, hypothetical conceptions of this sort in order to satisfy within proper limits our just mental inclinations which always turn with an instinctive predilection towards simplicity continuity and generality of conceptions while always respecting the reality of external laws in so far as accessible to us six six thirty nine the most philosophic point of view leads us to conceive the study of natural laws as destined to represent the external world so as to give as much satisfaction to the essential inclinations of our intelligence as is consistent with the degree of exactitude commanded by the aggregate of our practical wants six six forty two among these essential inclinations he includes not only our instinctive predilection for order and harmony which makes us relish any conception even fictitious that helps reduce phenomena to system but even our feelings of taste. Les convenances purement esthetiques, which he says have a legitimate part in the employment of the genre de liberté, reste facultatif pour notre intelligence. After the due satisfaction of our most eminent mental inclinations, there will still remain a considerable margin of indeterminateness, which should be made use of to give a direct gratification to our... Bassoin of ideality by embellishing our scientific thoughts without injury to their essential reality six six forty seven in consistency with all this Monsieur comte warns thinkers against too severe a scrutiny of the exact truth of scientific laws and stamps with severe reprobation those who break down by too minute an investigation generalizations already made without being able to substitute others six six thirty nine as in the case of lavoisier's general theory of chemistry which would have made that science more satisfactory than at present to the instinctive inclinations of our intelligence if it had turned out true but unhappily it did not these mental dispositions in m comte account for his not having found or sought a logical criterion of proof but they are scarcely consistent with his inveterate hostility to the hypothesis of the luminiferous ether, which certainly gratifies our predilection for order and harmony, not to say our besoin d'etialites, in no ordinary degree. This notion of the destination of the study of natural laws is to our minds a complete dereliction of the essential principles which form the positive conception of science and contained the germ of the perversion of his own philosophy which marked his later years. It might be interesting, but scarcely worth while, to attempt to penetrate to the just thought which misled M. Comte, for there is almost always a grain of truth in the errors of an original and powerful mind. There is another grave aberration in M. Comte's view of the method of positive science, which though not more unphilosophical than the last mentioned, is of great practical importance. He rejects totally, as an invalid process, psychological observation, properly so called, or in other words, internal consciousness. At least as regards our intellectual operations, he gives no place in his series of the science of psychology, and always speaks of it with contempt. The study of mental phenomena, or as he expresses it, of moral and intellectual functions, has a place in his scheme under the head of biology, but only as a branch of physiology. Our knowledge of the human mind must, he thinks, be acquired by observing other people. How are we to observe other people's mental operations, or how interpret the signs of them without having learnt what the signs mean by knowledge of ourselves, he does not state. But it is clear to him that we can learn very little about the feelings, and nothing at all about the intellect, by self-observation. Our intelligence can observe all other things but not itself we cannot observe ourselves observing or observe ourselves reasoning and if we could attention to this reflex operation would annihilate its object by stopping the process observed end of part 1c recording by bill borst